0: feels like coming home, and uh, it's great to see a number of you this morning as we came in, and to greet you, we hope to see some more, and if we forget your names, forgive us, and bear with us, and tell us what they are, will you? (laughs) By the way, we've gone from voles to volts, did you get that? Stu Vols, I said to him, you dropped a letter. Well, he said he thought maybe I added one, but anyhow. I want to think with you this morning about Father God's love for the lost. To do that, I want to read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, the opening couple verses, and then I'm going to slip down and read the story of the lost son opening with Luke 15, 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such despicable people, even eating with them. Now I want to slip down to verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now instead of waiting until you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money on wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed his pigs. The boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired men have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please, Take me on as a hired hand. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long distance away, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening in the pen. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told, and your father has killed the calf we were fattening and has prepared a great feast. We're celebrating because of his return. The older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've worked hard for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time you have never never given me even one young goat for a a feast with my friends. And yet when this son of yours comes back from squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the finest calf we have. His father said to him, look, dear son, you and I are very close and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and he's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners, we read in verse 1, often came to listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such despicable people, even daring to eat with them. Well, it was just another day and another complaint for Jesus. Jesus had become all too accustomed, I'm sure. Uh, to this endless criticism, this murmuring, this grumbling, leveled against him by the religious leaders of his own day. On such days it must have seemed to him that he'd been sent to earth as heaven's complaint department. No matter what he said or did, where he went, or who he associated with, he was the object of scathing criticism. Let's begin this morning by noticing how Jesus answered his critics. How Jesus answered his critics. On the day recorded here in the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, Jesus was teaching the multitudes and was, as was often the case, a large number of tax collectors and notorious sinners had come to listen to him. And that was all it took to set the tongues of the religious leaders wagging once again. This was not the first time. Jesus had been criticized on this very count back in Matthew's gospel chapter 9 verses 10 and following. We read these words. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to be his dinner guest along with his fellow tax collectors and many other notorious sinners. The Pharisees were indignant on that occasion too. Why does your teacher eat with such scum, they asked. I I must tell you this week when I read this because I'm not used to using the New Living Translation, and Jeff said that's what he's using now, and so I turned to it, and I was kind of shocked when I read, this scum. Why do you, you, you eat with this scum? On that occasion, Jesus had responded to their criticism by pointing out to them the obvious, namely that um, it's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. Certainly, the Pharisees would have agreed that these notorious sinners were of all people the sick in their society. On still other occasions, as in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus took on the Pharisees mano a mano, face to face, man to man, warning them of God's inevitable judgment if they persisted in their hypocritical practices, snakes he called them, sons of vipers. How will you escape the judgment of hell, he asked. Pretty strong language. But on the occasion described here in Luke 15, Jesus chose to answer the Pharisees' criticism not as we might have expected, by means of a stern rebuke or a slow skewering over the fires of hell, but rather by appealing to their best angels, as though to gently invite them to reconsider the error of their reasoning. And this he does by setting before them not one, but actually three carefully chosen parables. Each one and all of them alike calculated to help the teachers of the law reconsider the worth of the common folk who had come to hear Jesus teach. Were they really notorious sinners? Were they really despicable people? Those are the two phrases we find in our text. Were they really, as the Pharisees had said in Matthew nine ten, the scum of the earth? were these people, as Jesus referred to them, lost souls, the object of God's very special love and attention? To prove his point, Jesus invites his critics to place themselves on the inside of the stories he's about to tell them, to make themselves the protagonist of these parables that he's about to use, to suppose that they were the shepherd Who had lost a single lamb. To suppose that they were the woman. Who owned ten precious coins. Until one day she realized that. One of those precious coins was missing. Or again to suppose that they were the father. That had two sons. One of them who had left home. And gone out on his own. And broken his father's heart. Suppose he says. Just suppose for a moment. That you're that shepherd. With a hundred sheep but one of them lost on the hillside. Suppose that you're that woman with nine coins in her hand, but one is missing. Suppose that you are that father with one obedient son, but the other's out there somewhere, you're not even quite sure where, away from home. How would you feel? What would you do? I think the beauty of Christ's teaching device here is that it's calculated to make his hearers identify personally with the truth he's about to teach them. Namely, that when something or someone is lost to us, that thing, that person, takes on new and special value to us. Who among the teachers of the law, who among us here this morning, hasn't experienced the truth of that very basic, simple teaching? We wake up to discover that uh, our keys or our glasses or our checkbook or our purse are not where we put them the night before uh, when we went to bed. At least we thought we put them there. And our first thought is somebody must have moved them. Did one of the kids move them? Did, did my wife move Who moved them? And then it comes to us, no. Apparently I've I've just misplaced it. That's it. It's just misplaced. So we set about looking in all the obvious places. We look in our pockets, the pockets of our pants, or our dress that we wore yesterday. We look on the desktop. We look in the study. We look behind the dresser. We look in the freezer. No, no. You say, why the freezer? I had a friend whose wife was constantly losing her keys in the freezer. We lose things in strange places, don't we? But nothing. And then there comes that sickening feeling. Maybe it's lost I mean, really lost. Maybe I've lost my keys, my purse, my glasses. And in that moment, the lost object, that lost object, suddenly becomes your most precious possession. How are you going to live without it? You still have 2,000 other possessions. But that one, the lost one, is the one that has all of your attention. Yesterday, it was just one among many, one in a hundred, one in a thousand. Now that it's lost, its value has increased 10 times over. You search every corner of the house. You retrace your steps. You call the restaurant where you ate yesterday to see if maybe you left it in the seat there. This week, we went through just this process. Uh, I woke, Sherry walked out of the bedroom with the declaration, I've lost my glasses. I want you to know that one of the things we've been doing more recently, as we get more and more forgetful, I've got a little whiteboard at home. And the night before, I often will sit down at the whiteboard and I'll write down the things we need to do the following day so we don't forget some of them. And so I'm looking at the whiteboard, and I'm just sitting on the far side of the room, and I'm thinking about now. First, we're going to have to do that, and then we get that done. we and then, then maybe this one we'll do second, maybe that one. And Sherry walked out of the room, and she said, "I've lost my glasses." And suddenly, the whiteboard didn't matter at all. Everything else came to a halt as we searched high and low for her glasses. Notice what Jesus had done by using these three parables. He has completely reframed the discussion. The Pharisees came to him uh, with their complaints about his association with the scum of the earth. Jesus proceeds to recast these folks in the role of the lost ones, deserving of our greatest attention, our greatest concern, our most precious possessions, made all the more precious by, the virtue, by virtue of the fact that they, they're lost. Next, Jesus reveals Father God's concern, Father God's heart for the lost. Father God's concern for those whom the religious leaders had mistakenly referred to as despicable sinners, scum of the earth. And to do this, Jesus tells a third parable, the parable of the lost or the prodigal son. Either of these titles is, I think, unfortunate since in context, The point of the parable is not so much the unworthiness of the son or the waywardness of the son, but rather his father's unfailing love and compassion for him. As the story begins, a father of two, both sons, is being approached by the younger of the two. His request is a simple if unusual one. Father, he says, verse 11, give me my share of the estate now before you die. Couldn't wait. Being the younger of the two sons, his share upon the death of his father would have been, as some of you know who've studied these scriptures over the years, would have been one-third of his father's possessions. His older brother would have received two-thirds, according to the Old Testament law. But unable to wait for his ship to come in, he is willing to settle for something less, perhaps two-ninths, or scholars say maybe one-fourth of the family's riches. Next, in verses 13 through 19, Luke describes the full extent of the young man's lostness. Upon receiving from his father what is due him, he runs fast and far. He can't get away quick enough and he can't go far enough. He wastes or squanders or casts to the wind, is what it really means, all that he had, all that he'd received from his father. And then when a famine came to the country that he was in, where he'd run away from his father, he soon found himself starving. Verse 15, it got so bad that he took a job with a local farmer feeding his pigs. Not a nice job for a Jewish boy. And at its worst, the young man actually envied the pigs since they at least had carob pods. That's the literal translation. Some of our translations have brought it over as corn husk because we don't know what carob pods are, but either way, I don't think I'd want to eat. Have you ever eaten corn husk? I have. Say, so you must have been in bad shape. Well, let me tell you. I was away from home for the first time. I was selling dictionaries door-to-door in Texas between my, my senior year in high school, and I didn't know what because I had no plans and a friend of mine who was there said, you know what? They've got a lot of great Mexican food down here. I'll bet you've never even had Mexican food. I said, no, they don't have Mexican food in Canton, Ohio. He said, I'm going to take you out for Mexican food. He took me to a nice Mexican restaurant, and he said, let me order for you. And he did. He ordered uh, tamales. (laughs) And they came in the traditional way. They came wrapped in corn husk. And I began to unwrap them, and he said to me, no, 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 don't. What are you doing? These people have gone to all the trouble. To prepare these things in the original way, eat it as it was served to you. And so, if you can imagine, I sat there with a knife and fork and teeth cutting through that stuff, thinking myself being polite in order to do that. Only after we left the restaurant did he turn to me and laugh and say, Didn't you notice all those people were laughing at you when you were eating that corn husk? You don't eat the husk. Did I need to tell you that? <laughs> And so he's come to an end of himself. And that's what the text says in verses 17 through 19. Jesus portrays the crisis moment when the young man comes to an end of himself. He came to his senses, the text says. Now, if this were not a parable, we would expect Jesus to stop here and say something about about the Holy Spirit's convicting of the young man. Because we know that no man comes to the Father. No man comes to his right senses apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We don't get those kind of theological teachings and parables. And so Jesus just moves on with the story. And he says, the young man came to his senses. And in that moment, his pride is overcome with regret and repentance. And he confesses the greatness of his sin before both heaven and God and against his father. And he blames nobody but himself. He takes it on himself and he declares his unworthiness to be considered a son of his father. And he says, I'll go home and tell my father what I've gone through and what I've experienced and what I've learned and what God has taught me. And the text says very simply that he turned toward home. That's an interesting thing because in the Old Testament, where we use that word repent a lot in our churches, at least we used to. The Old Testament word for repent is simply the word to turn. It just means shuv, the little Hebrew word, to turn. And the text says that's what he did. He turned. He turned around. Not just physically, his heart, his mind, his whole way of looking at life. He turned and he headed back home. Back to the Father. All this, everything Jesus has said to this point, his parable about the shepherd who'd lost his sheep, his parable about the woman who'd lost a silver coin, the story about a wayward young son who left his father in his home and got lost in a foreign land, all this has been preliminary. It's all been preparatory. It's all been a stage design for what comes next. Namely, Jesus' revelation of how Father God views the lost. There are at least four ways in which the the Father demonstrates his love and his concern for his lost son. First, we read in verse 20, he ran out to meet him. When he saw him a long ways off, he ran out. To meet him, While he was still a long ways away, it suggests that he, the father, was looking for him, was longing to see him. We had breakfast just a couple weeks ago with some friends of ours who had a son. His name was Kurt. Many, many years ago, when he was just a teenager, perhaps 40 years ago, he left home and never came back. A couple times over the years, they've gotten word about their son, where he was. He called once or twice to let them know he was still alive. That was about all. His mother, Sue, told us that recently they got word that he had died in Philadelphia some while ago. They didn't know about it. I couldn't help but think of how often Sue must have gone to the door of her house looking, just hoping, maybe, Maybe this will be the day when Kurt comes back. That's the heart of the Father. He's ever looking, ever longing, always ready, ready to run to greet, to embrace the lost. Second, in verse 20, he embraced him and kissed him. And that's significant because in Bible speak, This is the equivalent of saying he forgave him. You remember how when King David and Absalom had their great divide, their great division, and Absalom was looking for some sign, some sense of peace with his father David, some sense that his father wouldn't kill him when he came back. But when he came back, King David embraced him and kissed him. And in Old Testament terms, that means forgiveness, and so the father who longs for the lost also stands ready, ever so ready, to forgive all. Third, verses 23, or 22 through 23, he restored him to his place of sonship. You know, the son had said, I'm not worthy to be your son, but the father restored him. Verse 21, And the son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called son. Verses 22 and 23. The father says, bring the first, the finest clothes that we have. Bring a ring and place it on his finger. It's the sign of family honor, the crest, if you will. Bring shoes, which meant he wasn't going to be a servant. He wasn't going to be a slave because slaves didn't wear shoes. Only sons, only members of the family wore shoes in those days. Kill the fatted, the the grain calf, the one that got grain fed, the one we kept special, that one, the one for special events. and, And he threw a great feast. And finally, in verse 23, he celebrated the return of the lost. We must celebrate, he said. We had to celebrate, verse 32, and be happy. Why? Because your brother was lost, but now he's found. This theme of celebrating or rejoicing at the return of the lost is really central to Jesus' teaching about the Father's love for the lost. I don't know if you picked it up, but it appears over and over again in Jesus' teachings on God's concern for lost men and women. Note, in the parable about the lost sheep, Jesus asked them, what would you do if you were the shepherd and you had a lost sheep and you found it? What would you do? You would joyfully carry it home. You would call all your friends and neighbors to what? To rejoice, to celebrate with you. And he says, he goes further, he says, in the same way, heaven, God will be happier over one lost sheep than over the 99 who haven't strayed. And then comes the parable about the lost coin." And how did the woman respond when she found her lost coin? Well, she called her friends and neighbors to what? To rejoice, to celebrate, because she had found what was lost. And Jesus says, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner, one lost soul repents. And now here in the parable of the lost son, what's the bottom line proof of Father God's love for the lost? What's the bottom line proof verse 23 we must celebrate verse 27 we are celebrating verse 30 you celebrate verse 32 you we have to celebrate and be happy why because the lost has been found the preeminent display of God's love for and concern for the lost is his rejoicing when even one of them is found indeed Jesus tells us all oh, heaven stops to rejoice on that occasion. Well, Sherry and I didn't throw a party when we found our glasses, but we did stop and rejoice for a little bit and said a prayer to thank the Lord. And then we're able to move on with our day once again. But that, that business of celebrating when the lost is found, that's very key to the way we respond, isn't it? When the lost are found. And this incredible, almost unbelievable revelation of God's love for the lost And his immense joy when a single lost son or daughter returns home might have been Christ's final word in this message. Except for one thing. What's that, you say? Except for the fact that this entire teaching, these three parables and all around them, began with a very different and a very scandalous view of the lost. It began with the religious leaders of Christ's day complaining about the time Jesus was spending with these lost people and designating them as notorious sinners and despicable people and the scum of the earth and someone you would never sit down to eat with. A view of the lost that could hardly be further from Father God's heart for them. And just because that's so, Jesus adds a third teaching, which is really an applicational teaching to his message here. And so we come to our third point. Jesus invites us to reconsider our own attitudes toward the lost. And to accomplish this end, Jesus, Jesus returns to his, his third parable. The lost son is home now. He's restored to his rightful place in the father's household. He's being fated. He's being being celebrated inside the home. And the father is celebrating his return as well. But verse 25, meanwhile, the older brother is returning home from his work in his father's field. And we pick up the story in verse 25. When he returned home, he heard the music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Well, your brother's back, he was told and your father's killed the calf, we were fattening, and he's prepared a great feast. We're celebrating because because of his safe return. And the older brother ran into the house, went straight to his kid brother, and planted a big kiss on him, right? (laughs) No, he got angry. He wouldn't even go in the house, much less join the celebration. Eventually, his father came to him and begged him. He pleaded with him to join the celebration. But that only embittered the older son. All these years, he said, all these years, you have never celebrated my faithful service and my obedience to you. But when this wayward son of yours comes back from squandering all the money that you gave him on prostitutes, you celebrate with the best you have to give him. To which his father replies, son, you're very dear to me. By the way, that's a pretty compassionate response for what this father's hearing, don't you think? Son, you're very dear to me. Everything I have is yours. But we've got to celebrate your brother's return. He was lost, but now he's found. He says, he was dead. He's dead to me. And in this encounter between father and older brother, we're given a graphic picture of the stark contrast between the way the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, saw the lost as despicable people, as notorious sinners, as the scum of the earth, as someone you'd never sit down with, and the way Jesus sees them, precious, worthy of the very best he has to give. He will, in a matter of a couple short years, offer up his life for them. their return home is the occasion for heaven's grandest celebration. That the application of Christ's teaching here in Luke 15 is not only for the Pharisees of his day, but for us today is really unmistakable, isn't it? The issue confronting us is this. What do you think of the lost? You know, that crude neighbor of yours, your loud-mouthed co-worker, your uncouth brother-in-law, oh yeah, the liberal mayor, the gay teacher at the local high school. Do you think of them as the scum of the earth like the Pharisees did? Probably not, except for that one guy that just drives you crazy. More likely, our feelings about them are more like the older brother's feelings about his wayward younger brother. His his problems are of his own making, we say. He's just getting what he deserves. God owes him nothing. I owe him nothing. Certainly not a second chance. Perhaps, and even more likely, I suggest, we don't think much about the lost at all. Whenever possible, we keep our distance. We say, well, you know, God's going to take care of them on the Day of Judgment, so I don't need to worry about them. Truth is, we have little need for them. Our greatest joys, Christian, are typically found in our fellowship with the 90 and 9. Nothing wrong with that. But how about the joy of seeing one of the lost come home to Father God? Where does that joy rank in our hierarchy of celebrations? Do we join Father God and the angels of heaven in rejoicing at their return? Are we happier over one lost sinner who returns to God than we are over fellowshipping with the ninety and nine who are already in the fold? Pastor Jeff is uh, about ready to get away on a sabbatical. I'm so happy for him. I love Pastor Jeff. He's a good man. He's a faithful pastor. I believe this is going to be a singularly important time in his young pastoral life. And I trust that right now you're committed to be praying for him during those days. Don't forget him while he's gone. He needs your prayers. 25 years ago, I, I got my one and only sabbatical. It took three months since it was my one and only. And my plan was to visit ten churches which had a reputation for being vital, healthy churches. And I made a discovery. I made several discoveries, which I listed and brought back to my elders, but here was one of them. I discovered, among other things, that healthy churches are churches where the people take great delight in fellowship with one another. That generally makes a good sign of a healthy church. The people are in love with one another. They enjoy their time together. They're not beating on one another. They're not not speaking evil words against one another. They really enjoy fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. But vibrant churches are churches which not only take delight in fellowship with one another, but whose greatest joy is found in the return of one lost soul to Father God and to the fold. Over the years, I've been able, been privileged to be part of some churches that have found ways of doing this. I'm going to just mention a couple to you this morning, not because I'm suggesting they're the right ones, just because I think they give us an example of how we can celebrate, celebrate the return of lost ones I remember we were in one church where they had a big vase. Maybe you've done this at some time in your history, a vase at the front, and every Sunday, if roses appeared there, the number of roses represented the number of people who, through the lives and ministry of their folks, had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that previous week. And on a weekly basis, the worship leader would draw attention to them and say, this week, a father and a young woman and a grandma and a, a child, seven years old made their commitment to Christ and the people would go wild. Why not? The angels in heaven are celebrating. Why would we do less? I remember when I was at the university church in Champaign-Urbana and we would have those special Sundays, baptismal Sundays, We'd have two or three services because we couldn't get everybody in. It was standing room only, literally standing room only. Imagine now if this room was full and the aisles were filled with people and people were sitting in the middle sections because there just wasn't enough room. Three services in a row, people coming to see brothers and sisters, sorority brothers and sisters, folks that they'd been sharing Christ with sometimes for years, stand and make their profession of faith and the place would go wild. I remember the coming out of my Quaker backgrounds where we believed in quiet. It bothered me at first. Uh, Lord, good Lord, forgive us. They're going to start beating on tin cans next. Who knows what they'll do? But then I remembered that heaven itself delights and rejoices and celebrates. that just one lost soul returns to the Father. Father God, may we enjoy our fellowship with you and with one another in the faith but may we never lose sight of that even greater joy that comes for heaven and earth and the church of Jesus Christ in particular when one lost soul comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and is brought back into the fold. Oh, may we never forget that. May we rejoice and enjoy even as heaven does. Amen.